Good morning again. Would you uh, turn your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 9? If you don't have a Bible with you, let me encourage you to grab one under the chairs in front of you. You can find Ecclesiastes 9 on page 544. We are nearing the end of our summer sermon series on the book of Ecclesiastes, and uh, based on some of your comments back to me, um, it seems like Ecclesiastes strikes a chord. And I think one of the reasons it resonates with contemporary Americans, maybe especially here in the metro New York area, is because Ecclesiastes tells it like it is. It's raw, it's unvarnished, um, there's no sugarcoating reality. The teacher, as he calls himself, we believe it's King Solomon, he honestly wrestles with the toil and pain of living in a broken world. And as king, we've noted, Solomon had everything anyone could ever want under the sun. That's a phrase he uses so very often. And yet, he declares everything meaningless, hevel in the original Hebrew language. He has riches, he has fame, he accomplishes great things, he enjoys everything that culture has to offer, but poof, hevel, what does it matter if we're all going to die? This morning, we'll look at some familiar themes that we've already come across uh, during the summer, but we'll also see a hint or a pointer to the only true antidote to this otherwise hopeless and empty human experience. Let's read Ecclesiastes chapter 9, first 12 verses. Listen carefully. These are God's words. So I reflected on all this and concluded that the righteous and the wise and what they do are in God's hands, but no one knows whether love or hate awaits them. All share a common destiny the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who do not. As it is with the good, so with the sinful. As it is with those who take oaths, so with those who are afraid to take them. This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. The hearts of people, moreover, are full of evil, and there is madness in their hearts while they live, and afterward they join the dead. Anyone who is among the living has hope, Even a live dog is better off than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no further reward, and even their name is forgotten. Their love, their hate, and their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. Go, eat your food with gladness, and drink your wine with a joyful heart, for God has already approved what you do. Always be clothed in white and always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with your wife whom you love all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun, all your meaningless days. For this is your lot in life and in your toilsome labor under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For in the realm of the dead where you are going, there is neither working nor planning nor knowledge nor wisdom. I've seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the learned. But time and chance happen to them all. Moreover, no one knows when their hour will come. As fish are caught in a cruel net or birds are taken in a snare, so people are trapped by evil times that fall unexpectedly upon them. This is God's word. Let's pray. 
Lord, uh, the teacher captures thoughts that maybe sometimes we don't dare to speak out loud as followers of Christ, or maybe he captures exactly what we say and think and believe. Father, um, under the sun, everything is meaningless. So show us with spirit-filled eyes what is above the sun. Reveal to us truth about eternity, about the spiritual, not just the physical. And above all, show us Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, the first happy thought the teacher shares is, we're all going to (laughs) die. We're all going to die. Verse 1, we're all in God's hands, but verse 2, all share a common destiny. And he says that includes the righteous and the wicked, that includes the good and the bad. And when we think about that implication in relation to a life of faith, that thought sometimes triggers a, an all-too-common struggle of faith. It triggers a question like, does living a life of faith and obedience and honor, does it make a difference? Does it come back to bite me in the end? Shouldn't the good people or people of faith suffer less? starve less in the world, die older than evil people, than people who reject God? Verse 3, and uh, we find it again and again, but verse 3 is the first example. Verse 3 is one of the keys to understanding the teacher's point that everyone shares this common destiny of death. He says, this is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. Did you detect how many times it showed up in the verses that I read? Under the sun. The perspective that this is all there is. That all all that we can know are things that we detect and experience through our senses. There's only the natural and not the supernatural. There's only this earth and there's no such thing as heaven or eternity or even the Lord himself. And if that's the case, then hevel, meaningless. What's the point? Death is our ultimate enemy because man and woman were created in the image of God to uh, enjoy life. But sin introduced death that affects everything and everyone. Hevel. The teacher goes on in verses 4 to 6 to say the obvious. Life is better than death. He says in verse 4, even a live dog is better off than a dead lion. Now, first of all, without any biblical background just yet, we could say that um, this is just a repeat of what we saw last week, that dogs are better than cats. A live dog is, you know, a cat, a a lion is a big cat. Um, Cat and dog theology, if you were uh, on vacation last week. Um, But you're you're a tough crowd this morning. Um, (laughs) Second, um, here's a little biblical context to make the statement even stronger. Um, In the Old Testament, for example, when Goliath meets uh, David the shepherd boy and sees him coming at him without any armor on, he's not a warrior, he's just a kid, Goliath says, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? As if to say, you know, who am I? A dog? The, the, The lowest of all animals? Because... Elsewhere in the Old Testament, actually most of the references that we find in the Old Testament to dogs 
are when a prophet, for example, is predicting doom as judgment on the people of God, and one of the worst things he could say is, you're going to die and dogs are going to eat your dead body. It was the worst of indignities. Uh, Dogs were not beloved pets. They were wild scavengers. People didn't have Fido sitting at the foot of the easy chair while they watched TV. They were the lowest of all animals. And that background makes the teacher's comment even more striking. It's better to be a live bottom of the animal kingdom scavenger, lowest of the low, than to be a dead lion, which if we put the cat and dog thing aside, we know lions are the top of the food chain because Simba took over for Mufasa despite his (laughs) Uncle Scar's evil intentions. I mean, he's the animal king. But the dead, verse 5, even their name is forgotten. For most of us, it happens a few years after we're gone. For a very few of us, the, the most brilliant, the most inventive, the, the most athletic, the most powerful, the most influential, the most beautiful, maybe that lasts for a few decades, our name. For a very few, maybe it lasts a few centuries in the history books. But at some point, the only people who care at all are the geeks in the academic world marveling at someone who lived centuries and centuries ago. We have a common destiny. We're all going to die, and everyone's going to forget about us. So, secondly, enjoy life with a question mark. Is that what he's saying? Just eat, drink, and be merry? First, throughout the book, the teacher has mentioned three things that humanity commonly tends to chase after accomplishment, pleasure, and justice. Those come up in various forms throughout the book. Accomplishment, it it provides us with a sense of purpose. It's often connected to what we believe is worth our time and energy and money. It's what we put our our energies, our our lives towards. Um, Pleasure, it has to do with satisfaction and happiness and beauty, enjoyment, aesthetics, And then justice asks, how do I make sense of life in this broken, chaotic, messed up world? Well, in uh, verses 7 to 10 in our text, the teacher says this about pleasure. He says, if we're all going to die anyway, then feast on good food and drink. Then enjoy marital life, enjoy health, enjoy your work, enjoy it all before death takes it away because we share a common destiny. These verses echo chapter 3 verses 11 to 12, where the teachers already said, God has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also, sorry, that's not the right text. Um, Verse 12, I know that there's nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. So he's putting a positive spin on it in chapter 3, even though he he might sound a little bit more cynical here in chapter 9. We're all going to die. Do whatever you want. That's not really what he's saying. He's, uh, he's, this is not an invitation to out-of-control hedonism, the pursuit of pleasure. This is not a, a call to gorge on food and alcohol and sex and whatever else money can buy and people can chase. This is not all-you-can-eat wings. I love wings, by the way. I believe they're a superfood. Um, 
But this is not an all-you-can-eat buffet where the gluttons go at it. This is a savor the moment, treated as a gift of God. This is a stop and smell the roses when all too often we get bloodied by the thorns because we want to grab rather than enjoy and marvel and exercise patience as Ken started out our service with. The wonder of a child gives us this great picture. And part of the wonder of a child is his or her ability to delight in the present, right what's in front of them, instead of worrying about the past or, or, or dwelling in the past or worrying about the future. Now, of course, we'd say maturity brings responsibility, right? Little kids don't have responsibility, but don't make the mistake in assuming that responsibility necessarily means worry and anxiety. The Apostle Paul tells the Philippians in chapter 4 that the way to deal with anxiety is prayer with thanksgiving. This isn't just a series of 911 calls to heaven for God to intervene and fix everything. This also centrally involves, thank you, God, in the midst of chaos and brokenness and hevel and, and real suffering and toil, thank you, God. And Paul, in, uh, still in Philippians chapter 4, a few verses later, goes on to describe that living in the present requires biblical contentment. He says, um, I've learned the secret of being content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Are you content with what God has provided you? It may not be much, but contentment is not tied to abundance. Or are you consumed with what you don't have or with wanting more than what you already have? The teacher says that's meaningless. Hevel. We're all going to die. Verse 6. Their love, their hate, their jealousy have long since vanished. It makes no difference to your happiness in the end. I mentioned the the third recurring theme in the book of Ecclesiastes of justice. What we find here is is one example of uh, what feels like injustice when good people suffer and bad people prosper. Isn't that wrong, God? Psalm 73 sticks out as Asaph's psalm when when he says he he couldn't make sense of this. He struggled. It was a faith issue. And that, by the way, is pure under-the-sun thinking because it only takes into account the here and now. You know, God, what are you doing? We want this sort of one-to-one correspondence. I do good things, I get blessings. I do bad things, I get punished. That's called karma. The biblical truth does not involve karma whatsoever. In fact, it's the opposite. The gospel says we get what we don't deserve. Stop thinking you want what you actually deserve because it's self-destruction. Injustice, from another perspective, is also one of the reasons, main reasons people say they don't believe in God. They have a problem 
when um, there is so much senseless suffering and the common thought is how can there be a loving and powerful God if either he doesn't care or he is impotent to do anything about what he cares about? And part of the honest biblical answer is to say, you know what, I can't explain why there is so much senseless suffering. I trust God who is wise, and what I do know is that I worship a God who understands suffering because he sent his son to suffer in the place of his people. And perhaps most importantly, when we talk about the problem of evil, the problem of suffering, and I worship a God who's able to raise the dead. There's nothing he can't undo. But that doesn't answer the problem. It acknowledges that suffering is a challenge for belief. But what we'd also say is suffering is a challenge for unbelief, for a philosophy of purely under-the-sun thinking. Because if this is all there is, there's no God, there's no supernatural, there's no eternity, but people still name and point out and categorize evil, the question becomes on what basis can you label something as injustice if there's no foundation for truth and justice to begin with? Calling something evil requires an anchor for morality. And if hevel and under-the-sun thinking means there is no God, without such an anchor point, what you say is evil might not be what I call evil. Who's to say whose definition should be the anchor point for calling something right and calling something wrong, for saying that's just, that's fair, that's okay, and that is unjust, and we need to do something about it? I think we see that in the news every night. Somebody's deciding for themselves, and perhaps it's become the majority, what's wrong, and it has to go. In a secular worldview, the only explanation for life is under the sun, which has no answer for suffering, no answer for chaos, no answer for brokenness, and certainly no hope in light of the suffering. Verses 11 and 12 point out the unfairness of life, the randomness of life. The race is not to the swift. Really? Don't fast people win races? Solomon says no. Or the battle to the strong. Nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the learned, but time and chance happen to them all. You know, there, there are generalities, right? We, we tell our kids, you go to school, you're going to be okay. You get educated, you work hard, you'll be fine. doesn't guarantee anybody a job. doesn't guarantee anybody they're not going to get hit by a truck the day they graduate from college. Time and chance happen to them all. That's the aspect of the reality and ugliness of life that the teacher is always sort of overemphasizing, right? Hevel, hevel. It implies, verses 11 and 12, the, the unavoidable collateral damage that hits innocent bystanders in life. And don't we all know, some people dodge that bullet by an inch and some people don't. Most people were doing their normal touristy thing and got back to their hotels and flew back home, but a few people didn't. Most recently in Barcelona, and earlier in the year in Times Square, and earlier last year in Nice, in France. And that's just vehicles, not bullets and knives and bombs. 
a secular, purely under-the-sun worldview offers no peace, no assurance, no explanation. And so if suffering and evil are a problem for faith, and I think we need to acknowledge, yeah, we can't explain it. It's tough. All I'm saying is suffering and evil are also a big problem for unfaith, for unbelief, for purely under-the-sun kind of thinking. If this is all there is, wow, what's the point? Why are we here? Hevel, meaningless. Living life becomes a matter of running through the minefield with your fingers crossed, with your teeth clenched, just hoping you get lucky. If God does not exist, then life is just a Darwinian race to see which gene pool wins out. And then, logical conclusion, how can you complain that some strong people want to weed out the weak? In that Darwinian world of only under the sun thinking, there's nothing wrong with that. And that's a problem. On what basis could anyone criticize Iceland? For, it sounds noble, they've virtually eliminated the birth of any babies with Down syndrome. But how have they done it? Aborting almost 100% of babies who test abnormally in prenatal tests. The, the, the researchers, the, the politicians, the social scientists, they believe they're doing something very good by eliminating suffering by protecting parents from what they say is a lifetime of struggle. But if that's okay, people, we no longer have the means, the moral grounds on which to look back in history and condemn the Nazis for exterminating people groups with congenital diseases and conditions like epilepsy. You know, we don't want that in our gene pool. Well, anyone with epilepsy, come up front. We're going to clean humanity. Does anyone think that was okay? Or um, um, manic depression, cerebral palsy, muscular dystrophy. These were known targets of the Nazi regime. And over 400,000 people were sterilized. So whatever they had wasn't going to be passed on. Would anyone say, that's okay? That's justice. That's what I want. You you know, you, you think Down syndrome is getting worth getting rid of? I'd vote for getting rid of anyone who drives too slow in the left lane. Uh, you know, I think that's a worse scourge upon humanity, not these people who um, will hug you to death and who retain the joy and the playfulness of an eight or nine-year-old, as the Wikipedia page on Down syndrome will tell you. Who are we to decide? If there's no moral compass, no anchor, no foundation, because there's no God, then folks, hevel, hevel, hevel. Just go home. Put your head under a box. It's scary. If we are all a random collection of cells that happen to figure out how to get together and develop complex thinking, then on what moral basis do we declare that ISIS is evil? The strong are weeding out the weak. That's the normal course of life, if you purely think under the sun. On what basis would we say that white supremacists should be denounced if there's no moral compass? 
or that Bill Clinton's behavior back in the day or that Donald Trump's behavior in this day is wrong or immoral or lacking integrity. We have no basis. And what we need, lastly, is a wisdom that saves. You know, the teacher seems to tack on this little strange story that starts in verse 13. I want to read it now. I also saw under the sun this example of wisdom that greatly impressed me. Remember, Solomon was wise, uh, more wise than anyone on the face of the earth because God had given it to him, and he saw something that was like, wow. If it wowed Solomon, we got to continue. There was, a once, there was once a small city with only a few people in it, and a powerful king came against it, surrounded it, and built huge siege works against it. Now there lived in that city a man, poor but wise, and he saved the city by his wisdom, but nobody remembered that poor man. So I said, wisdom is better than strength, but the poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words are no longer heeded. The main character in this little vignette is a poor but wise man. He's remarkable, first of all, because his wisdom saved a city. We don't know how, but the situation is dire. Anyone um, predicting what's going to happen next is going to say they're done. They have no defense. But this man's wisdom enabled the people to survive against all odds. I think Solomon's also amazed He's got wealth beyond belief, and some of it came because of his wisdom. I think he's also amazed that this man's amazing wisdom didn't improve his life. He's poor, and he was a nobody, and he remained a nobody. His wisdom was like having superpowers. He saved a city with it somehow, and yet he didn't use that for self-promotion. Maybe just cut himself a good book contract. You know, appearance fees, a brand around his name, endorsement deals. More amazing, this poor but wise man was forgotten. Verse 15, and his wisdom was despised. He saved the city through his wisdom, but later the people despised that same wisdom. This is a story that makes no sense. This is a story um, that doesn't draw much attention under the sun, at least. He came and he went. We profited. He's a nobody. Move on. He was poor, but he had wisdom that saves. He saved his people, but he was not esteemed, and we despised him. He was afflicted and scourged. you know him? Countercultural. A nobody to the world. Under the sun, the epitome of hevel. A criminal. A crazy man. If he had power, why would he not use it? If he had wisdom, why didn't nobody else see it and heed it and follow it? Do you know him? Solomon only saw a shadow of what was to come. He saw a pattern. He didn't know it, I don't think. But it struck him. 
And it, I don't think it made sense to him because he was too used to thinking under the sun, but he saw a pattern that the Lord Jesus would later perfectly fulfill and bring to its consummation. Folks, our God is not a nameless deity that sits removed on the throne of the universe. He has personally entered time and space and demonstrated the extent of his love by sending his son into the heart of heaviness. On the cross, he experienced the worst of meaninglessness, abandonment, and forgottenness. That was the hell of the cross when the father turned his face away. When the chaos of all of evil and broken humanity was poured out upon Jesus, in addition to the wrath of the Father. I want you to hear this again, straight from the Bible. Life is meaningless under the sun. Makes no sense. There is no hope under the sun. If this is all there is, you have every reason to numb your pain with opioids, with alcohol, with food and drink and sex and whatever kind of entertainment can distract you long enough from the randomness and injustice of the world that is more than any of us can bear. But God the Son went into the heart of heaven. He suffered the greatest injustice that has ever been committed. A perfect God-man being punished for people like you and me who are guilty and deserve to be sentenced. But he took it upon himself. And if you trust in this Jesus, if you see that he had to go to the cross because of your sin and my sin, then you have access to the only antidote to heaven that has ever been offered to humanity. You will see by faith while enduring pain in this still broken world, you will see that God knows suffering and injustice through the life of his son Jesus. And you will see that um, God knows what it means to be forgotten, abandoned. And you will get a glimpse of God's promises to make all things new, to heal you body and soul through resurrection power, the same one that rescued Jesus from the heaven of the cross. Let's pray. Lord, we marvel. There are no words to describe our awe, our appreciation, uh, uh, our version of Solomon being greatly impressed. It makes no sense, Lord, because it's too good to be true, but it's the truest of all stories that you, Lord God, King of the universe, would send your son to his unjust hevel of a death that you might rescue us from an eternity of meaninglessness and forgottenness. And now by faith we are yours and we marvel at that truth and we bask in it. We bask in your love and we give you praise because of your son, our savior, Jesus. Amen.